speak now. We need to hear you. We are your servants, ready to respond to your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verse 38 says this. Behold, Mary said, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. See, sometimes I fear that when we read the Bible, that we read it like a romantic novel. If you're a Christian, a Christian Karen Kingsbury or somebody else, but we read it and we just think that this author has written and played it out in, in an entirely perfect way that it can be so seamless and so connected and such pivotal moments are said with such elegance and grace. Or, or maybe you're not a fiction reader. Maybe you think of it as a television or a movie where we, we read the scriptures and we go, wow, this was so perfectly placed at the right time. And, and we knew, because we knew all that was going on behind the scenes and around them, we knew this was the choice they needed to make. And the, the main character, the protagonist, made the choice we wanted them to make. See, sometimes we read the Bible like we're watching a Hallmark movie. Where, where, where it's like, no, duh, we need to move away from that Wall Street jerk to the small town shop owner. He is what is good for her. Right? I mean, we read this and we read Mary going, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And we go, wow, of course Mary would respond that way. But what we need to understand is that when we open the scriptures, that these are real decisions, dangerous decisions, difficult decisions having to be made by real people at real time with real issues going on in their lives. And so I want to reread that. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is not the confession of a trained missionary. This isn't a pastor or pastor's wife. This is not somebody that has years and years of seminary experience. This is not even somebody that has watched for decades as God has worked miracle after miracle in her life. No, this is the confession of a 14-year-old girl who is interacting with an angel for the first time in her life, who is terrified and scared to death, who has been called to do something way beyond she can handle. And what does she say? Let it be to me according to your word. This girl who says, let it be to me, I am your servant, God, is knowing that by choosing to go down this path, she will endure slander from all the onlookers looking at this premarital pregnancy. She knows that she could be uh, divorced. Uh, she could have her uh, engagement canceled immediately. She knows that her family may ostracize her. She knows the struggle of what this is going to be like. She knows the fears of having a child at this young age and knowing all that was to walk through with that. She knows the rejection that could happen, the ridicule that will happen. She knows all of these things will happen when she states, let it be to me according to your word. There's real fears of being alone, of being left out, of being forgotten, of being given up on, of being rejected, of being slandered. 
And in the face of those fears, she says, let it be. In the face of those rejections, as a declaration over those problems, she says, let it be to me. It is a major risk, a difficult choice, a hard decision. It's a weighty decision. It is faith on the level of Abraham raising the knife over his long-desired son. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's not flippant. This isn't a cheesy line in a cheesy movie. This is life. And all that she has dreamed and all that she has hoped for and all that she has desired is shifting in this moment. So I want us to ask today, how does this teenage girl move from the question, how can it be to let it be? How can she put such a trust in her God? And how can we, 2,000 years later, as people still trying to follow, still trying to focus on, still trying to give our life to this great God who works in her situation, how can we respond with the same level of faith and same activity of trust like this teenage girl does? I think the text, as we go back to verse 26, will give us some clues. I'm a little hot this morning. Not in temperature, Suzanne. That was, I know you're going, agree, Jordan. No, I'm a little worked up this morning, so we're just going to have to go with that emotion because that's just where it is because this is a great text. Verse 26, let's jump back to it. In the sixth month, now this is Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, not the sixth month of the year. This isn't June. This is in the sixth month because Luke is connecting to us the story we studied last week of Zechariah and Elizabeth are pregnant and there's no way they should be. Not only is she barren, she is advanced in years, well past the age of childbirth. This is impossible, and yet it is real. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, it says, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the reason that it's written that way is Luke is writing to a highly Gentile audience that they know where Galilee is, but they don't necessarily know Nazareth. This is like when somebody starts talking to you about East Texas, and you're like, just give me the bigger town, and I'll just go with it there. Like, I know kind of where you are now. Like, this is the connections here. So, in a city of Galilee and Nazareth, all right, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Let's pause there for a second. So we know Luke is setting us up that this, this angel is sent from God to this woman and he is very clear in verse 27, twice he mentions her state as a virgin. To the virgin betrothed to a man. The virgin's name is Mary. It is key for Luke to bring that to the forefront. And biblical readers and Old Testament knowledgeable people would know that virginity and coming to a virgin like that is going to set in motion a lot of amazing things. See, Mary at this point is in her teenage years, betrothed to a man, 
probably a few years older, if not decade older or more. He is of the lineage of David, but don't get confused by that title. That doesn't mean that they are royalty or rich. No, they are most importantly just ordinary and most likely probably even lower class. And then this idea of virgin comes to mind. Isaiah 7 verse 14 tells us this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is Isaiah's prophecy 700 years ago. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us in the womb. God with us is coming through the lineage of David, is coming through the womb of a virgin. God with us is coming to fulfill the promises and the prophecies that were made centuries ago. This is what is all being turned up. Verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. See, it can be easy in this moment to start exalting Mary. She's favored one. And we can start going, wow, Mary is this incredible woman that, that we should just really exalt in this highest way, but that's not what the text is bringing out here. No. Mary is favored not because of her merit, not because of her faith, not because of her goodness or her righteousness. She is favored simply and only by the choice of God, not the merit of her works. Mary is chosen by God not because she's the best or even because she's good enough, but simply because he chose her. There wasn't some cosmic reality show in heaven where the angels sat along a judging panel and they started reviewing all of the virgins that were alive at that time and who they were going to give a rose to. No, this is not how it worked out. Okay? God, from the beginning of time, has had this plan from Genesis chapter 3 where the, uh, the serpent will strike the heel, but we will bruise the head. God has known that Jesus was plan A from the beginning, and he has had this prepared for this moment. Mary is chosen because God has chosen her out of his infinite mercy and grace. Just like Israel was chosen as a nation, to be a nation from Abraham's womb, I mean, not Abraham's womb, from Sarah's womb, from, from the line of Abraham, Mary is chosen. And this supernatural event is greatly troubling and confusing and perplexing. Just like Zechariah was confused at the angels showing up, Mary is even more confused because typically angels show up to priests or to prophets or to kings. She is none of the above. She's not even a him. She sees the angel. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and it's worrisome. This is new territory. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. What that means is this. It's a reassurance to Mary. God is for you, not against you. He is coming with good news, not judgment. In this journey of trust that Mary will go on over the next eight verses, I think it is pivotal that it starts with this knowledge. She doesn't have to wait. It's like when you get that phone call. Anytime I call my in-laws, 
they kind of answer hesitantly with a, is everything okay voice? Like, we're used to Corlin calling, not so much you calling. Is everything, the first thing I always say, everybody's good. I just wanted to talk about Christmas, all right? And so there's that kind of like, what is going on? The first thing Mary hears, you have found favor with God. God is for you. You don't need to worry that judgment is coming down the pike. I wonder how many of you in this room right now need to hear that. That God is on your side. That God is coming for you, not against you. With good news, not judgment. I wonder how many of you live each day in fear. In a fear of God. How many of you live each day wishing that there was someone who would love you and accept you? But you fear that your sins, your choices, your actions, your activity, that your life is too far gone. That you've been too messed up, too sinful, too messy. How many of you struggle to trust God because the only relationship you have with him is fear? There's a holy fear for sure, a reverence. But how many of you are scared to death of that day where you stand before God? Because you know what you have done, where you have been, what you have said, and what you have thought. How many of you need to hear this morning, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm coming with good news, not judgment. I'm on your side. You have found favor in my eyes. Trusting God starts by believing God is for you. That he loves you. That he desires you. Too many of us have bought in the lie that we have failed. For Mary to start in this trust journey, she hears first, God is for you. Let's continue verse 30. Verse 30, it says, I'm going to read it again. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. When God starts naming your baby, he's going to be important. Okay? Biblical truth there, principle there. If he tells you the name, it's going to be important. I must tell you a little bit more about how important this son is. Verse 32. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's stop there once again. Gabriel comes and says, Mary, it's okay. You have found favor in the eyes of God. We are coming with good news, not judgment. And then he says, let me tell you what's about to happen. You're about to have a child, okay? We're going to get to how in just a second. But you're about to have a child. And his name is going to be Jesus. And her head starts remembering all the names that God has given children. I think it was, it was Samson and Samuel's mother were given names this is a, not only a promise of conception, but a, a promise of life that is going to come. And then he says, but let me tell you a little bit more about this son that's coming. And he has five things that he says, all right? 
the first. He says, he will be great. It's kind of like God is love. He will be great. That is who he is. Some of us may say, I may say, Ron is great at this. Or Kelly is great at the piano. Or, or so-and-so is, is great at making me laugh. That's, that's great. That's awesome. But Jesus is great. There's a difference. It's his character. It's who he is. It's what defines him. He is great. The second thing. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That is a really fancy way to say he is the Son of God. He will be called, as you could shorten that down to, he is. All right? You can look into the Greek and all that. And it can be written out as just simply, he is. And then the Son of the Most High. Once again, Most High is just another fancier way to say he is the Son of God. Listen, Mary, teenage girl who is hearing this in this moment, terrified by what is happening, he is going to be great. He is going to be the Son of God. Number three, some messianic connections. He will have the throne of his father, David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 and 13, it says, this is God to David making some promises to him. It's the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you whom uh, shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We've already connected that Joseph, Mary's husband, her soon-to-be husband, is from the lineage of David. And, And what Gabriel is saying is, listen, these messianic promises, this new king you've been waiting for as you have endured the oppression of Rome, he, this is him. Number four, it says he will reign over the house of Jacob. So he is great. He is the son of God. He is uh, the one that is coming from the line of David, the king from David's line. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Reign brings out kingly imagery that he will rule and reign. The house of Jacob is just a fancy way of saying Israel. Because from Jacob's lineage, we have the tribes and all of that. He is the king of Israel. Mary, this one is the Messiah. The final thing is that his kingdom will not end. Will never end. Isaiah 9 Verse 6, we read this at the beginning, and I'm going to read just past where Ian went. Ian read us part of verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And catch this. From this time forth forevermore. What do these five statements reveal about this child? He's the one. The hoped for. The promised. The anticipated. The desired. The prayed for. He is the redeeming one. The saving one. He is the one to make it all right again. He is the true prophet. The true priest. The true king. Mary. This is the one. And he's coming to you, Mary. 
How does this help in our trusting? In that moment, Mary learns very quickly that what God promises is greater than her problems. She's already heard that he is for us and he is with us, but these are not small promises. This isn't an ordinary light that is going to come through her. This is the king. This is the one. This is him. And so as we battle in faith, I want you to consider as well. Because we can be tempted and go, but God, what you're calling me to is difficult. It is hard. It is costly. I don't think I can do it. But I think we need to remember, though, that trust, I don't know how I have it written, but I know it's going to come on the screen in a second, is remembering that the God's promises are greater than our problems. We can trust God because we can remember that His promises are greater than our problems. Mary is given great promises, but we too have great promises from God. We're promised that He loves us, that He will not leave us, that he, we will not be condemned because of our sin, because if we have trust in Him. We are promised salvation we could not earn, security we could not keep. We are promised hope we cannot fathom, and eternity we do not deserve. But God promises us more for even today. He promises His presence when we feel alone. He promises us peace when we feel shaken. He promises to help when we are hurting, direction when we wander, comfort when we're inconsolable. He promises us rest when we are weary and we are burdened. He promises us grace when we are sinful and we're wafered, wayward. He is working, we can promise, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it. He is working for our good and for His glory. The promises of Gabriel give Mary confidence for faith. The promises of God in the scripture give us confidence for faith to face every challenge, every problem, every issue that come against us. We have to remember that the promises of God are greater than our problems. Last set of verses, verse 34. Mary asked the real question, how will it be, God, since I am a virgin? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative in her old age has also conceived, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Verse 37, in case you're missing all of that, for nothing will be impossible with God. It, it's interesting. Mary asked the question very similar to what Zechariah asked last week. Zechariah said, how shall it be for we are too old and we are barren? Mary says, how can it be, is what the NIV says, and that's how I learned it, so that's how I say it. How can it be, how will this be since I am a virgin? But there's a difference I think in how Mary asks and how Zechariah asks based on the response of the angel. Zechariah, I believe, is asking doubting. God, it's impossible. It can't work. And as a result, he's given a sign and a punishment, right? He is mute, potentially deaf, the whole way. And, and he is reminded for those nine months of the term of the pregnancy that God can work in ways beyond what we can fathom. I think Mary asks in confusion. How in the world is this to be? I, I don't get it, God. I, I, know, I know what should happen, and I know how I get pregnant, but, but I don't know how this is going to happen. 
How will it be, God? Verse 35 explains how that will happen. This virginity concept is coming right to the forefront because it matters, because this is what God has promised. He explains, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the child to be born will be called holy. I love how Robert Stein, a commentary I was reading this week in this chapter, how he says it. He says, it's not the how that we need to dig down deep to understand. It's the what it means that matters. Understanding how that gets there is not as big of an importance as what it means that God is working in the womb of a virgin. And see, what it reminds us is that the God who worked to create everything that we can see in this world, the same God that created sun and moon, mountain and valley, ocean and lake, color-changing chameleons, an enormous elephant. That God is going to work again. He will once again create, this time in a womb, not in the emptiness and void of this earth, but the God of creation is still able to create, is still able to do anything. And the God who created the world will now create in your womb, is what he tells Mary. Verse 36, he gives her some proof of the work of God. God already is working. You know your cousin Elizabeth, the one who has advanced in years. You know the one that has been wanting a child for so long, the one that has been barren her whole life, the one that is now too old to have a kid that has given up that hope. Guess what? She is pregnant. God is already doing the impossible in front of your eyes. The works of God are on display for you to see, Mary. Will you look at it? And then verse 37, in case she's missing that, Nothing will be impossible with God. See, God is not limited by my reality, by my experience, by my expectations. God is not limited by a box that I can put him into. No, nothing is impossible with God. Mary, you're asking how can it be? Gabriel answers, with God it can be however we want it to be. Anything can be with God. I wonder in that moment if Mary starts thinking back over the stories she's known from her childhood. Does she think about Noah and the flood? Impossible. Does she think about Abraham and Sarah? Impossible. Does she think about Joseph in Egypt from prison to second in command? Impossible. Does she think about Moses in a burning bush, Israel in a Red Sea, Joshua in the battle of Jericho, David against Goliath, Daniel in a lion's den? All of them are impossible, and all of them show the hand of God working in ways that we cannot fathom or create, and yet he can do it just like that. For nothing is impossible for God. Trusting God means that we allow Him to do beyond what we can imagine. That nothing is impossible with Him. Better yet, anything is possible from Him. See, I wonder if we have struggled to trust God because we have limited Him to operate in what we perceive as possible. Because we have bound His abilities, we've narrowed His power. Have we believed our problems are too big, our situation is too confusing, too many moving parts, our community is too lost, our family is too hopeless, our nation is too far gone, individuals are too insignificant for him to listen? Do we worry that our prayers are too small, that our prayers are too short-sighted? But see, the God of the universe, the one that made everything that we can see or think of, we need to learn that we can trust him with everything in our life. 
trust him with every sickness, with every relationship, with every single situation that we encounter, he can. See, the works of God in history give us the confidence for the work of God in our present. Because he has, he can. See, the faithfulness of God in the past gives us faith for right now. Because in many ways, our faith every single day is a response to his already shown faithfulness. Which brings us to the verse we started at. Behold, Mary said, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. From how can it be to let it be? This is a journey of trust built on who God is, what he has done, and what he promises to do. It's built on his character. See, you and I have real issues, real fears, real struggles, real problems, real doubts, real questions, real confusions, but guess what? We also have a real God. A real God that we can trust. A real God who promises and keeps them. A real God who comforts us in the chaotic. A real God with whom anything is possible. A God who is love, who is faithful, who is powerful, who has proven himself from generation to generation. And this gives me confidence, church, to trust him. To step out in faith to believe against all logic, to trust him in the storm, to trust him in the chaos, to trust him in the calamity, to trust him in trials, to trust him in all things and for all things because he has shown himself over and over again and he is for us, not against us. And he cares about us and he sees us and he knows us. Let it be according to your word is a statement of faith a statement of trust, a statement from a 13 or 14-year-old girl that I hope to live up to as well, where I go, God, I believe you, and whatever may come, I will follow you. Mary was given the good news of a child to be born. Church, you and I have been given good news, and we're going to celebrate that over the next few weeks and really come to a climax on Christmas Day. See, we were given this child that did all that he promised to do, all that he was prophesied to do. God with us, Emmanuel, came to live among us, to die for us and to be raised so that we can be raised. And now you and I have the opportunity to trust. For some of you, it's to trust that what God has said in this word about his salvation, that it is true. Some of you have never really trusted it. Some of you have been at church for a long time. You've been around. You could recite it and kind of explain it a little bit, though you don't want to have to do that, but you feel like you could get by enough. But do you trust that your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by your merits? Do you trust that what he has said, that he loves you and he is for you and not against you and that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, do you trust that? We have an opportunity to trust. Some of you need to trust that God is for you. 
That doesn't mean that God puts a rubber stamp on every choice you make. No, you're sinful too. You make really awful choices, really selfish decisions, really bad things. Or maybe I should just be looking at myself right now. I make really awful choices, really bad choices, really terrible decisions. I am selfish. I am greedy. I am arrogant. I am boastful. But I can also say, God is for me. And I am loved. And I am cherished. And I am desired. And I am bought with a price. Some of you need to trust that God is for you. Some of you need to trust that God loves you because you were only ever taught in churches a God you had to earn his love. Some of you need to trust that God is working in this situation for your good and for his glory because you feel like it's too much. Some of you feel like you got the salvation part down. I trust God for my salvation you trust him for everything. I've been reading in Luke around chapters 13 and 14 lately in my personal devotion. It's really hard because what Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, ooh, it's not easy. You have to give me everything. So some of us trust him for our salvation, but do we trust him with our family? Do we trust him with our schedule? Do we trust him with our finances? Do we trust him with our marriage? Do we trust him with our kids? Do we trust him with our job or the situation surrounding us? Do we trust him with our health? Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. A statement of trust. This morning, church, I think we need to be considering do we trust our God? Because Mary signs up for a really difficult road because she believes in God. And some of us are struggling just to be like, well, I don't want to sign up to, to give any money to the church. I don't want to sign up to have to be here three Sundays out of a month. I don't want to sign up to have to do this, this, and that. We need to be trusting our God. Let it be according to your word. Why? Because behold, I am your servant. Let me pray. Dear God, as we consider your word, and we consider the cost of following you, and we consider what dedication to you really looks like. Lord, will you show, as you showed Mary, that you